0: Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folktales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome to this delayed, festive edition of Tales of Britain and Ireland. And by festive, I mean ghost stories. Unfortunately, we're a little bit late, so the season is strictly behind us, but we're still mired in the depths of winter, and that means it's ghost story appropriate weather. During the long nights, the peoples of these islands have for centuries huddled around a warm fire and told tales to really put the willies up one another. To use a long, outdated phrase that holds a different connotation today. Famously, there was a real passion for Christmas ghost stories in Victorian Britain, spearheaded by a host of literary luminaries, Walter Scott, Elizabeth Gaskell, Sheridan Le Fanu, and Charles Dickens, amongst many, many others, with the story A Christmas Carol perhaps being the most enduring example. The Christmas ghost story tradition was continued into the 20th century by the undisputed doyen of the field, M. R. James. Since then, the Christmas ghost story has waxed and waned in popularity, and it's fair to say that it's going through a bit of a renaissance at the minute. And we here are proudly jumping on that bandwagon today. Now it wasn't like ghost stories started with the Victorians. Their spooky tales drew heavily on German stories, and on a much older English tradition. Famously, a Shakespeare character, Marmilius, declares, A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. Over the two episodes today, we're going to try and cover a really tiny corner of this huge piece of British tradition, and to do so, we have a slightly different format than usual, as you'll notice with the two episodes. Many ghost stories, unlike the myths and folklore we often cover, have one definitive version penned by a known author, and it may rightly be claimed that much of their effect comes from the words as written, leaving less scope for improvisation than is usual in these podcasts. In addition, accounts of ghosts are sometimes less narratively focused, and consist more of assorted snippets of this sighting or that sighting. To cover this, today we've got a total of four things for you. First of all, this episode, there's three accounts of ghostly goings-on from different times and places. First up, a truly medieval ghost story dating from the 14th century, and somewhat different from more modern equivalents. This will be told in my usual circuitous rambling way. Secondly, we'll discuss one of the supposedly true accounts of Victorian ghost, and take a look at the horror of Berkeley Square. And finally, there's a story based on the also purportedly true, but even less actually true events, from the monumental tome Lord Halifax's Ghost Book. Which, well, you'll see. Then, the episode released at the same time as this features a ghost story from writer Edith Nesbitt from 1910, which though from a slightly later period follows Victorian ghost story tropes and which I'm going to be delivering as a straight up reading with few of the asides and less epic music than usual. And we're going to see how that works out or doesn't. Any feedback on this episode would be especially appreciated if you liked it, if you hated it, if you were indifferent, the whole gamut please. Now both episodes will be interspersed with customary discussion of the topics raised. So we've got a lot to get through, and in true Crypt Keeper style, let's begin this trio of terror with a tale of ghastly ghouls from Medieval York scare. Yorkshire. Hmm, I'll work on this. The road across the moors was cold as twilight set in that winter's evening a man on horseback was making his way from Gilling to Ampuffuff. It was a short journey, made often by the tailor, for such was he, in the course of his work. Some days it was worse than others. This evening he was especially thankful for the warmth of the cloak he was well bundled into. Snowball was the man's name, and yes, he'd heard all the jokes. Yes, both the ones strictly on winter-related themes, and the ones about what might be missing from between his legs. Now he was alone and there was no one to make the jokes, which was a relief. Alone, that is, until a little while into his ride, when he acquired an unexpected companion, a large crow that flew around his head. The bird was unusually close and bold and he eyed it warily, when suddenly it careened down to the ground, out of control, as though it had been hit by something. Snowball stopped his horse and regarded the unusual crow as it dragged its wings along the ground, something he'd only ever observed in birds near the point of death. He peered down at it, and fire seemed to leap from the bird. Snowball jerked back in his saddle. This small mystery suddenly took on a malevolent feel. He crossed himself, and at that the terrifying ball of Corvid took off into the air with a mighty shriek. But he didn't go far and settled down a little way away from him. He didn't waste any time. He kicked his one horsepower engine into gear and tried to put some distance between him and it. Wings beat. Thwack! The crow barreled into Snowball with tremendous force and knocked the man clear off of his mount. Winded, bruised, and frightened, Snowball cowered on the ground. Nothing happened. The crow was still there, standing still, watching him. Adrenaline seized him, and he rose and drew the sword that hung at his belt. It was meant for bandits, not ominous ornithological oddities, but it would do. He made to strike. Thud! A heavy blow landed, but the small body may as well have be been made of steel for all the damage it suffered. God in heaven! cried out Snowball taking the Lord's name very much not in vain. Protect me from the power of this thing. Bid it leave me be. And at that, the crow gave another terrible shriek and flew off into the night. Snowball was left trembling and alone. It had worked. God had protected him. He gave thanks to the divine and, still shaken, resumed his ride. Oh no, not again. No more than ten minutes had passed before Snowball saw something up in the road ahead of him. A huge, slavering dog, dragging behind it a chain which was fastened around the beast's neck. A glance at its expression was all it took for Snowball to know with cast-iron certainty that this was the crow again, in another guise. His appeal to heaven may have temporarily halted it, but it wasn't stopped. "'Good boy. Nice doggo.' "'The fearsome hound gave a menacing growl. "'Snowball decided to try a different tack. "'Appeals to heaven had worked the last two times after all. "'Lord God in heaven above, I'm begging you, "'in the name of the Trinity, "'could you see a way to explain to me "'what it is I should be doing? "'Whatever it is, I will honour it. "'Just stop this hideous spectre. "'At this the dog gave a plaintive whine, as though threatened with a slipper after eating the post. Then it opened its mouth and began to speak. In life I committed a most awful deed, and as punishment was excommunicated. You, you must find him who excommunicated me, and seek my absolution. I need nine times twenty-nine masses celebrated for me. The astonished Snowball did some quick mental arithmetic, 261 masses? That seems a little extreme. Well it was a very bad deed. Good math skills by the way. But wait, there is more. You must return to me here alone and let me know when the absolution has been placed in my tomb. And then I shall tell you how you may be healed. Healed? Healed, yes, healed. For if you don't do as I have asked, your flesh will putrefy, your skin will weaken, and both will fall away from you in a short time, leaving just a skeleton. Why me? I don't know you. Why you? Don't pretend you don't know. You've not been to mass recently, have you? Despite his terror, Snowball blushed in embarrassment at this. He had a little conversation in his mind. Church obligations were too much for a busy man like you, weren't they? All they did was protect you from a world full of evil undead spirits. Who needs that? No, you were too good for them, weren't you? The ghost spoke up again. So you see, it is you that have granted me this power. And at this, the ghost burst into flames, and at the same time took on a translucence, so its insides were clearly visible. And to his horror and disgust... Snowball could see that the ghost formed its words not with its tongue but with the visceral contractions of its intestines, muscles squelching to produce sound. Go, and tell no one except the priests who will say the masses, and I suppose anyone else who might be helpful, but no one else, go. Needing no further encouragement, Snowball set off once again into the night. Several days later, and Snowball was lying in bed, overcome with fever. Spirits of the Dead had notoriously poor personal hygiene, and he had picked something up. Through the haze of his sickness, he used his time to try and weigh up the complex morality of it all. The dead man had been excommunicated. He'd done something pretty bad. Should he, Snowball, try to interfere in church matters, at the prompting of a fairly evil-seeming spirit, that could only even see him because of his lack of attendance at church, helping such a being go to heaven, somehow that didn't seem entirely right. But then again, he had pleaded to God. Maybe helping the soul was his way of re himself with the divine power. If this was his big chance, he really didn't want to screw it up. Christian morality and the purpose of heaven and hell was confusing at a time like this. And he'd better get this right. Because with a name like Snowball, he didn't fancy his chances in hell that much at all. And to top everything off, there was the whole business with the flesh melting off his bones if he didn't help. And you know that? That kind of simplified it a bit. A few days later still, and Snowball was feeling much better, and his flesh hadn't yet melted off his bones. He was in the city of York, having tracked down the man who issued the excommunication and trying to convince him to now issue an absolution. The man consulted some others. There was much stroking of chins from the holy, humming, harring over the same issue that had concerned the tailor. Should they do this? Was it right to do this? Did they have the time to, say, 261 masses? Snowball paced nervously as the men argued amongst themselves. Eventually, he decided to try and concentrate minds by the old method. A little financial inducement. This turned out to help greatly, and after a few days a scroll was passed to the tailor absolving our not-so-friendly ghost of all his earthly sins. At the same time, all the friars in York were saying the masses for this definitely upstanding gentleman who definitely deserved to be absolved. Soon Snowball had placed the absolution in the tomb of the deceased and he could breathe a sigh of relief. It turned out that the crow-dog excommunicated ghost man had found the right impious tailor to threaten. So it was with triumph that Snowball returned to the scene of his first horrifying encounter. He was much bolder now and he had learned a thing or two from the Friars of York for when he returned he did not go unprepared. He reached the place, and he drew a great circle on the ground, erected a cross within it, and on that cross was etched words of the Gospels. He'd brought reliquaries with him as well, and he placed these holy objects in the form of a cross around the circle, and on those more words of Jesus were written. And soon enough, the ghost appeared in the circle. It turns out that all those teenage witches with pentacles on their bedroom floors have been doing it wrong. They just need more crosses and Bible verses. How ironic! Ma, 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 went the ghost from the circle, or should I say the goats? Goats? No, nope, that does not work. It should, but it doesn't. Anyway, the point is that this time the ghost was a goat, but not for long. After walking around the circle a few times, the goat collapsed. Snowball waited. And from the form of the prone goat rose a real ghost, all skeletal and awful, stretched so its elongated form towered above Snowball. From the dead sockets of its skull, it regarded the tailor. Despite the implications of his name, No one could actually accuse Snowball of being a coward. Did it work? he asked the ghost. Yes, came the reply of the dead man. Gods be praised, yes. For at the very moment you placed the absolution within the tomb, the devils of hell were tormenting me, and long had they expected to continue. But they were sore disappointed, for now... Thanks to your actions, me and thirty other souls shall enter paradise next Monday. Thirty other souls? Monday? The bureaucracy of the afterlife was truly beyond the wit of mortal man. And I shall keep my promise. You shall be healed. No more flesh falling off the bones for you, Snowball. And before I go, I shall tell you some facts that may be of interest. There are two other ghosts around these parts. One takes the form of a vast black bullock, but with no eyes, ears or mouth. And though he may wish to talk to you, he cannot. The other was once a priest, but now takes the form of a hunter. And I see that in good time, he shall be cleared by the Lord. Okay, well, that's odd and interesting, I suppose. But given your access to... The afterlife and all. Maybe you can tell me about my position in that whole system. Hmm. The skeleton scraped his phalanges against his smooth jaw, and the eerie sound reverberated in the silence. Well, since you ask. You have a gown from a friend of yours that you took in the war overseas. Return it to him or suffer the consequences. Snowball gasped. That gown? I don't even know where he is now. Hmm, true. Well, he lives near Anik Castle these days. Seek him out and return the coat. Oh, okay, I can do that. But actually, there is a much greater problem for yourself. Me. You? Why yes, you have got yourself a reputation, Snowball. As one who knew a man such as me, what lengths you have gone to secure my absolution. But at what cost to your own reputation? What? I helped, why is... Look, I can give you some advice. If you stay here, you shall always have enemies. There are better places to live. Also, on a practical level, always sleep with documents of value under your head. Now... Return home, look to the ground as you do so, and for tonight at least, do not look into the fire. That's it? That's it. As the ghost drifted off, Snowball did as it instructed. The huge spectral bullock joined him as he took the journey home. However much he tried to cajole or tempt it into speaking, it could not do so, clearly not possessing the intestinal ventriloquism skills of the earlier ghost. And eventually, it disappeared. And Snowball got home without further issue. And though he did not look into the fire, he was nevertheless ill for many days afterwards. And abruptly, our story ends there. Well, boils and ghouls, that all just goes to show that you should remember to go to mass. Or else, a massacre will come to you! <laughs> no, no, I can't actually do this at all. No massacres were mentioned. This crypt keeper malarkey is actually harder than it first appears. Right, before we move on, I'm going to do just a little bit of discussion about this story. This is a genuine medieval ghost story found in a manuscript attributed to a monk of Byland Abbey in Yorkshire, now a ruin but once one of the greatest monastic sites in England. It was written in the 14th century or thereabouts and the story was originally written down in Latin. This unnamed monk chronicled a number of local ghost stories which are, as you can tell, fairly different in form from what we would describe as such today. They were transcribed from the manuscript in the 20th century by M. R. James, the aforementioned celebrated writer of ghost stories. These stories offer a glimpse of an older ghost tradition, and I like this one in particular because it's got some elements of the ghost story as we know it now, but overall it feels very different. Its themes are clearly moralistic and Christian, about repentance and doing well, and in that way it shares some similarities with perhaps the most famous ghost story of all, A Christmas Carol*. Yet in that story, the morals are very clear-cut. The ghosts that torment Scrooge are there to help him improve as a person, and can easily be read as aspects of his consciousness or guilt or some such metaphor. Whereas the same cannot be said to be true of the ghost that torments Snowball. The tailor does receive some advice about how to be better, and yes, he should have gone to mass, But really the ghost is operating very much on its own agenda and has dragged in someone who has no connection to it at all in order to help it out the whole story is concerned less with the right and wrong than observation of the proper christian rituals it is performance of those rituals on which entry to heaven or hell depends not the behavior of the person in that sense this is perhaps a very catholic ghost story Another point of distinction is the way in which the ghost presents danger. Though terror is a factor, unlike in more modern ghost stories, disease and physical threat are just as much or more so aspects of the ghost, and the illness theme crops up again and again in these stories. The ghost itself is also very different. A weird, physical, shape-shifting being. A raven and a dog, intestines speaking. A bull with no eyes and ears and mouth. It feels like a collection of strange and disturbing images jumbled together, and that puts me more in mind of some of the spirits of Japanese folklore than what we think of as a traditional ghost in the Western tradition. And now I think on it, the one exception to that might be what would appear in a Ghostbusters film. Anyway, there's a few other stories like this in the collection, and I definitely recommend giving them a read. But now, gentle listener, we must move on, for reports of something horrible are emerging from Victorian London, let's pay a visit to the notorious 50 Berkeley Square. 50 Berkeley Scare, perhaps? <laughs> that was far better than York Scare. The Horror of Berkeley Square Some True Accounts. <laughs> Four-storey, whitewashed Georgian townhouse stands upon Berkeley Square in Mayfair, in the west end of London. Its interior is all grand rooms with high ceilings and sweeping staircases. This is a well-to-do area of the city, with many such impressive buildings. The square has long been the home of many rich and famous people, and today you might not pick out number 50 from amongst those around it, save perhaps by noting the plaque upon it that states that George Canning once resided there. George Canning's name is largely forgotten today, and is recalled most often as a factoid for quiz enthusiasts, as the Prime Minister with the shortest reign, dying in office in 1827 after less than four months in the role. His time living at 50 Berkeley Square was uneventful, but there was talk of a suicide that had happened before he had taken possession of the place a girl had thrown herself out of the top-floor window to escape her abusive uncle. Some even said that her ghosts could be seen from outside, replaying her last moments, hanging from the windowsill before dropping and disappearing. Upon George Canning's demise, the house passed to a Miss Elizabeth Curzon and nothing much happened. But in 1859, Thomas Mayers took it over. He was known for his odd hours, Mr. Mayers. Odd hours and odder habits. In a time before electronic entertainment turned any home into a -a 24-hour-a-day cave of wonders, Thomas Mayers never ventured outside and answered the door only to receive the necessities of life from his servants. Eventually, he retreated into the tiny attic room where he dwelt alone, save for those occasions when, in the dead of night, he would take to wandering the house with a candle, the flicker of the light visible to passers-by in the darkness. The house was left to gather dust and fall into ruin, and the gossip of the day was that Thomas had been left at the altar by an untrue fiancée, and having retreated into his isolation, was now going mad. The situation endured for several years, and the house fell further into disrepair and decay. By 1874, Thomas Mayers was dead. A reputation had already built around the eerie semi-abandoned building before his death. But afterwards, well... At some point George Littleton, a baron and politician who was local to the area, stayed in the attic overnight after being dared to do so. He awoke from his sleep suddenly, and found a feeling of oppression at the forefront of his mind. He looked around the room and to his horror he saw that a brown mist was slowly forming itself into some solid and awful shape. He leapt up in a panic, reached for the shotgun he had brought for this occasion and let off a shot before fleeing the house. The next morning he returned in company and discovered the shell, but no evidence of anything else. The first permanent tenants in the rooms of the house after Myers died complained of a strange, musty smell, very much like that of animals at the zoo. But events really stepped up a notch the day a maidservant was sent to clean the generally unused attic room. This was a big house, after all, and people had maidservants. She hadn't been at it long when a terrible set of shrieks came from the room. All the members of the household bolted to see what the matter was. They found the poor young woman there, scared out of her wits, but all alone, shaking in terror on the floor. Don't let it touch me. Don't let it touch me. Those were the only words anyone ever got out of her again. She died the next day. Then there was the unnamed sceptic, the man of science, He pooh-poohed these superstitious notions, and goaded on by his friends, declared he would happily sleep in the haunted room. But just in case, he would keep a bell by his head, so he could alert the others in the house should anything supernatural occur. The very idea. When the clock struck twelve, the ringing of the bell came from the room. Just once at first. The other residents stirred, not quite sure what they had heard. But soon after, there came a furious, non-stop clamour of the clapper, which cut short, leaving a sudden, ominous silence. By the time people reached the attic, it was too late. Eyes bulging from their sockets, expression a terrible grimace, the once proud doubter lay stone dead on the floor, the bell clutched tightly in his grasp. After two deaths, well, to my considerable surprise, people did what those in horror films failed to do, and they left the accursed place well alone. Despite dropping their rents, the owners were quite unable to get anyone to take it on, and this prime and deadly piece of real estate became abandoned yet again. And then, it was Christmas Eve, 1879. Because of course it was Christmas Eve. Two sailors were on shore leave for the holidays. What a day these two friends had had, spending their hard-earned wages with abandon to pay for the many pleasures the city had to offer. A wild and raucous time had most certainly been had. But now night was drawing in, and the money was gone. They found themselves traipsing through Mayfair with nowhere to stay, walking just to stay warm. One of them, Bill, good sailor name, Bill, spotted the house. Standing obviously abandoned, of its reputation they knew nowt, and faced with no other good options, they of course decided to break in and stay the night. They did so easily, and when they got in they went upstairs, because it smelt damp down below. And soon enough, they'd started a small fire going in the attic fireplace, and were settling in to their temporary accommodation. Mighty glad they were of it too, for from the window they could see it was an awful night. There was no moon to speak of, and a great wind howled around the house, and produced a moaning sound in the chimney. Despite this, they were awfully tired from their day of exertion, and soon they drifted off to sleep. They slept for a few hours before Bill was woken by a loud, banging sound coming from the dark house below. The attic room was cold now, the fire having burnt down, and Bill could see his breath in the air. The noise came again. Mick, Mick, he roused his companion. Can you hear it? Hear what? And again. I think it's that door we broke in through. It must have come off in the wind. Go and shut it then, said Mick. There'll be bobbies in here and we'll be nicked. I ain't doing that, going down to the cold on a night like this. It's Christmas Eve, there won't be bobbies round. And if there are, we can show 'em we weren't doing any harm. If you're bothered, you go do it. The banging continued. Nah, you're right. Let's just get back to... But he was cut short as there came another sound. One that caused both men to suddenly go very quiet. The sound of a creaking footstep on the bottom of the stairs. A few moments later, another. The sailors were both sat bolt upright now. They exchanged glances with one another. And very quietly, they got up. The steps came slowly, carefully, As if the person was waiting and listening before moving on to the next step. In some time, the sounds reached the landing. Mick grabbed hold of an old rusty poker that stood by the fireplace. The creak of the footsteps was moving definitely towards the room that Mick and Bill were in. And there was another sound now as well. Faint but unmistakable, a dragging sound accompanying every footstep. The men were no cowards and they steeled themselves for a confrontation as there came a wet thud and the door swung open. What exactly it was that Bill saw he never could quite describe an amorphous dark mass which burst into the room, grasped Mick around the neck with a dark tendril and lifted him up. A paroxysm of the most intense terror overcame Bill and he fled out past the thing and down the stairs to burst out the door away from that wretched insanity inducing sight. It turns out there was a Bobby out on that night and Bill soon ran into him. Shaking all over and babbling madly, he eventually persuaded the constable to come back with him to the house to help Mick. Bill didn't know whether he'd had the resolve to go back in, but fortunately, he didn't have to find out. Unfortunately, this was because the first thing he and the policeman saw was Mick's lifeless body, gruesomely impaled on the railings in front of that accursed house. The policeman's gaze took in the body, the smashed glass around it, and then he looked up at the broken top-floor window from which the poor man seemed to have been thrown. After the crescendo of that evening's events, the house never again saw such dramatic scenes. It remained abandoned for many years, but eventually, when the stories grew old and the rent had been dropped, it was taken on by a bookseller who ran it quite successfully for many years, Whatever the nameless horror of 50 Berkeley Square had been, it seemed to have moved on, leaving death, terror and a unique set of stories behind it. Of course these days, houses in London don't need unimaginable phantasms from behind the veil to drive one to be a gibbering wreck. The prices do that themselves, don't they? Getting on the property ladder, they say. Go to Barclay Square, and maybe you can get on the property madder. (laughs) Okay, that's it. Last of those. Sorry. Sorry I tried. Right. So, the house at Barclay Square. The stories that I've just kind of covered are representative of ones that have been told of this house in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm sure it'll come as a great surprise to you that there is basically no truth in them with the sailor story in particular seeming to have been flat-out invented. But that hasn't stopped the house getting a reputation, both at the time the events were meant to have happened and now, and it gets included in ghost tours of that area a fair bit, despite the fact that nothing of note has happened there for a long time. Now, this might not be the typical kind of story we cover on the podcast, but it actually represents a genuine modern folk story, retold many times with different embellishments, and often claimed to be true, Therefore, I think it fits pretty well, even if it hasn't got a narrative like many of our tales. It also interests me because it isn't your typical ghost in this story. It's something weirder, almost Lovecraftian. At some point, I would like to do an episode that touches on the pre-Lovecraft weird fiction that was written in Britain and Ireland. But for now, it's just interesting to see a supposedly true ghost story featuring a tentacled monstrosity. If you do a search online, you can see artist interpretations of what is simply called the nameless horror of Berkeley Square. And at least one of them is simply an octopus that's crawling up the stairs. Right, so that dealt with, we're moving on to the third part of this episode. And I'm going to level with you, this is basically for myself, and it fits the podcast's usual style even less than the last two sections. Basically I'm going to take some irreverent joy in reading a couple of select passages from a supposedly serious ghost book in a rather unserious way. If that sounds awful to you then please feel free to turn off now, go and do something else and join us for more standard myths in a bit. If you're still here then we turn to the tales of Lord Halifax's ghost book, dating from 1936. A little background is needed here. Lord Halifax's ghost book consists of stories gathered together by the eponymous Lord, which purport to show true accounts of supernatural occurrences by himself and his noteworthy friends and acquaintances. Whether he was really a believer or not, I can't even really tell, but the stories are not presented as simple fictions, but as real happenings, and much of the text is concerned with presenting facts which seek to convince the reader of the unimpeachable truth of the tales and the existence of the supernatural. And by that, I don't mean that it gives facts pertaining to the ghosts themselves. Oh no. But rather, facts pertaining to the reputation, wealth, property, lineage, and all-round first-rate character of those who saw the ghosts. I'm telling this to get across the impression of this compelling and convincing volume, rather than to actually tell a ghost story. And I really do encourage you all to read it. Now at this point you probably think I'm doing his lordship a disservice, and I certainly am. So let's have a shorter but complete tale, sure to make even the most sceptical, question what they know. And let's get our fill of some really long sentences in this true account from Reverend Dr. Jessup, headmaster of Norwich Grammar School. It's called The Man in a Silk Dress. And Reverend Dr. Jessup would like you to take note of the fact that the name does not refer to him. Little more than two months have passed since my experience of the supernatural was strikingly enlarged by the occurrence with which the following narrative deals. Already I find that round the original story an accumulation of myth has gathered, and that I am in danger of becoming a hero of romance as I object to being looked upon as a kind of medium to whom supernatural visitations are vouchsafed, and, on the other hand, do not wish to be set down as a crazy dreamer whose disorganised nervous systems render him liable to fantastic illusions, I have yielded to the earnest request of those who have begged me to record my experience in writing. I am told that there are those who busy themselves in collecting similar stories. If so, it is better that they shall hear the facts from me than after they had passed through other channels. On the 10th of October, 1879, I drove over from Norwich to Mannington Hall to spend the night at Lord Orford's. Though I was in perfect health and high spirits, it is fair to state that for some weeks previously I had had a great deal to think about, some little anxiety and considerable mental strain of one kind or another. I was not, however, conscious of anything approaching weariness, irritability or fag. I arrived at four o'clock in the afternoon and was engaged in pleasant and animated conversation until it was time to dress for dinner. We dined at seven. Our party numbered six persons, of whom four at least had been great travellers. I myself was rather a listener. The talk, which was general and discursive, amused and interested me greatly. Not for a single moment did it turn upon the supernatural. It was chiefly concerned with questions of art, and the experiences of those who have seen a great deal of the world and could describe intelligently what they had seen and comment upon it suggestively. After dinner we played a rubber of whist. Suggestively. No, no, he didn't say suggestively. And as two of the guests had some distance to drive, we broke up at half past ten. The main objective of my going over to Mannington was to examine and take notes upon some very rare books in Lord Orford's library, which I had been anxious to get a sight of for some years. I asked leave for some hours, to sit up and make transcripts. Lord Orford at first wished me to let his valet remain, to see that all lights were put out, but as this would have embarrassed me and compelled me to go to bed earlier than I wished, and as moreover, it seemed likely I would be busy till two or three o'clock in the morning, it was agreed that I should be left to my own devices, and that the servant should be allowed to retire. By eleven o'clock, busily at work and absorbed in my occupation, I was the only person downstairs. I was writing in a large room with a huge fireplace and a grand old chimney, and needless to say it was furnished with every comfort and luxury. The library opened into this room, and to reach the volumes I wanted to examine, I had to pass into it and stand upon a chair. There were six small volumes in all. Taking them down, I placed them at my right hand in a little pile and set to work, sometimes reading and sometimes writing. On the table were four silver candlesticks with candles burning. And, as I am a chilly person, I sat down at one corner of the table, with the fire on my left. It's these little details that really make it, isn't it? At intervals, as I had finished with a book, I rose, knocked the fire together, and stood up to warm my feet. In this way, I continued at my work till nearly one o'clock in the morning. I had got on better than I had expected, and had only one more book to study. I rose, wound up my watch, and opened a bottle of seltzer water, thinking to myself that after all I should get to bed by two o'clock. I then set to work on the last little book. I had been engaged upon it for about half an hour and was just beginning to think that my task was drawing to a close when, while I was actually writing, I saw a large white hand within a foot of my elbow. And this listener is the part of the story where the famous British upper-class resolve really comes to bear. turning my head I distinguished the figure of a somewhat large man with his back to the fire bending slightly over the table and apparently examining the pile of books upon which I had been working. The man's face was turned away from me but I saw his closely cut reddish brown hair, his ear and smooth cheek, an eyebrow, the corner of his right eye, the side of his forehead and the large high cheekbone. He was dressed in what I can only describe as a kind of ecclesiastical habit a thick corded silk or some such material. It was buttoned up to the throat and had a narrow rim or edging about an inch broad of satin or velvet which served as a collar and fitted close to the chin. The right hand which had at first attracted my attention was clasping without any great pressure the left hand. Both were in perfect repose, the light blue veins of the right hand being conspicuous. But I had not the least feeling of alarm or even of uneasiness, Curiosity and a strong interest were uppermost. I felt eager for an instant I felt eager to make a sketch of my friend, and looked at a tray on my right for a pencil. I asked myself Upstairs I have a sketchbook. Shall I fetch it? Sitting there he fascinated me. I was not afraid of his staying, but of his going. Stopping in my writing, I lifted my left hand from the paper, stretched out the pile of books, and moved the top one. I cannot explain why I did this. My arm passed in front of the figure, and it vanished. I was simply disappointed, and had no other feelings about the incident, naturally. I went on with my writing for perhaps another five minutes as though nothing had happened, and had actually got to the last few words of my appointed task when the figure appeared again. Now does anyone else at this point have some serious questions about this gentleman's attitude to encountering the supernatural, and just what was in those books that made them quite so interesting? Because I know I do anyway on with the story i saw the hands close to my own and turned my head in order to examine the man more closely i was about to address him when i discovered that i did dare not speak i was afraid of the sound of my own voice there he sat and there i sat i turned back to my work and finished off two or three words i still had to write well i certainly believe you what a fine outstanding example of an englishman you are The paper and my notes, which are at this moment before me, show not the slightest tremor or nervousness. I could point out the very words I was writing when the ghost came, and again when he disappeared. Having finished my task, I shut the book, and threw it on the table. As it fell, it made a slight noise, and the figure vanished. Sitting myself back in my chair, I sat for some seconds, wondering whether my friend would come again, and if he did, whether he would hide the fire from me. I then, for the first time, had a dread and a suspicion that I was beginning to lose my nerve. I remember yawning. Then I rose, lit my bedroom candle, took my books into the inner library, mounted the chair as before, and replaced five of the volumes. The sixth I took back and laid upon the table, on which I had been writing when the ghost appeared. By this time I had lost all sense of uneasiness. I blew out the four candles and marched off to bed, where I slept the sleep of the just. or the guilty, I know not which, but I slept very soundly. This is a simple and unvarnished narrative of facts. Explanation, theory or inference, I leave to others. And that's it. As you can tell, I just really enjoy this book. Go and read it, it's a lot of fun. Unintentionally so perhaps, but it is wonderful. Another very notable tale is the story of The Haunting of Hinton Ampner. That story is 16 pages long and uses two of those pages to list everyone who has ever owned a particular house and all their relatives, none of whom actually turn out to be the ghost. It also includes one of my favourite final lines in a ghost story, which shows how Lord Halifax and his collectors regarded tales from those of the lower classes. My servants told me that a spaniel in the house had been similarly affected, but that is only hearsay. If you need any more convincing, there's a story called The Vampire Cat, and if that doesn't do it, then nothing will. Okay, so that's it for this rather unusual episode. I hope you've enjoyed the mix. I hope it's worked. If not, please let me know. There's another episode available right now, which is just a strict telling of E. Nesbitt's the Shadow. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then please check it out. But if you'd prefer the more standard kind of format of this podcast, then in a few weeks' time you can join us again when we'll be venturing back into the world of Irish mythology and the stories of Fionn McCool. <laughs> You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join me again soon.